Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Brian Bella. Each week, Brian, Joanne, Ed, and I, all historians, take a topic from the headlines and try to see how we got here. This week, we're tackling three new stories, Apologies by Famous Men, the Alabama Senate Race, and Net Neutrality. And we'll wrap up the conversation with a segment we like to call Footnotes. That's when one of us shares something from the archives that we absolutely love. So, Joanne, why don't you start us off today? Okay. Well, the thing I want to talk about is public apologies, because there have been so many of them in the news in the last week or two, um, and they all have to do in one way or another with the question of sexual harassment or sexual abuse, and they've been coming from politicians, from Hollywood executives, from celebrities, from newsmen. And first of all, the fact that it's happening en masse like this is interesting, but also interesting to me is the fact that they've all taken a slightly different form, and they're being judged kind of differently, right? Some are seen as sincere, some aren't really apologies. And so as a historian is wont to do, um, I really wanted us to talk about the historical context of this kind of public apology. What other moments have there been or what other apologies have there been that either really did work or didn't work? Well, I'll start with the apology that is generally seen as one of the most successful, and it was not an apology. It came from Richard Nixon uh, when he was running for vice president in the 1950s. Uh, General Eisenhower was at the top of the ticket, and Nixon got embroiled in uh, charges of corruption, accepting certain gifts in return for favors. Uh, And Ike you know, many historians think was perfectly happy to get rid of Nixon at that point. And to get rid of him, he suggested that he go on TV because Eisenhower hated television. He figured that would really bury Nixon. And Nixon (laughs) appeared on television. It was set up as a living room. He was there with his wife, uh, Pat Nixon. And he pretty much knocked it out of the park. He referred to his dog checkers. It wasn't really an apology because the essence of it was he hadn't really done anything wrong. He had accepted this dog for his family. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checker. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. And he went on from there to become a successful vice president and the nominee in 1960 for the presidential race of the Republican Party. So if we're looking at successful pseudo-apologies, that's at the top of my list, Joanne. Mm. Hmm. 
so, so far, I mean, Nixon succeeded without apologizing, but we actually haven't had a, any apologies yet. Well, well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really hard-pressed. You, you raise this question, and I'm racking my brain figuring out if there's ever a point at which somebody actually accepted responsibility for something that was wrong, right? I mean, if... if <laughs> oh, gosh. If the, no, I mean, How seriously. about the Vietnam War, Nathan, and Robert mm-hmm. McNamara? Is there a moment where, where McNamara, not expressing regret for the, for the war, but actually responsibility for the decision to go into Vietnam? Yes. Mm-hmm. He very famously apologized and said that he was a part of the problem. The mistake, of course, because this was not accepted very well either, was that he apologized decades after the war had ended. And there was uh, an endless line of relatives of people who had died in the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. because of the decisions that McNamara had made. said, where was that apology when it would have really mattered? But I I do think that, uh, Nathan, you asked for a real apology. I, I do think that McNamara's apology was quite real. It certainly led him into a world of hurt. So, Brian, those were really interesting and useful. As it turns out, the 19th century offers a case that bears a lot of resemblance to today because it's really about sex and it's about a public shaming. The problem is that it's the shaming of the woman rather than the man in this case. It's 1884. Grover Cleveland is running for president. The press uncovers a widely known story that he had fathered a child 10 years earlier and the press wants to know what happened. They track down the mother of his child, Maria Halpin, who was a 38-year-old widow at the time. She said that he had relentlessly pursued her and that she finally consented to join him for a meal. And after dinner, he escorted her back to her boarding house. And then he had forced himself on her. She told him she never wanted to see him again, but five or six weeks later, she had to because she was pregnant. Mm. Lawyers become involved, and Cleveland sees to it that the child is taken away from her and that she is put into a mental institution. Wow. And so Cleveland's campaign knew this was going to come out, and so they decided to play offense, and they decided to say that she'd been actually quite free with her affections with lots of men. And Cleveland had, <sighs> was actually a, a gallant by taking responsibility because he was the only bachelor in the group. The press finds her. She's now out of the mental institution, and she gets an attorney. And the attorney shows a document that, upon an agreement of $5,000 from Grover Cleveland, she was going to surrender her son and make no further demands of any nature whatsoever upon the father. So there's bribery and a documented record, and she is you know, defiant, and she's brave, and she's out speaking about all this. So... What happens? Cleveland actually never apologizes, even though his opponents develop a chant, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? And the Democrats oh, answer— that's where that comes yeah, from. Yeah, and the answer by the Democrats, he's gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. So Ooh. if you want an apology, how about that one as a non-apology? Oh, my Was goodness. it better back at the beginning? Did we <laughs> no. to know how to apologize? No, <laughs> no it wasn't. And, and what I've been thinking about is, you know, what was probably the nation's first— maybe first scandal, but definitely first sex scandal. Uh, And that involves Alexander Hamilton, who was accused of misusing treasury funds 
and he steps forward in front of the public and he writes this pamphlet in which he essentially says, no, I didn't misuse treasury funds. I actually committed adultery. (laughs) 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 Because in his mind, it's, I'm willing to be a bad private man, but I'm not a bad public man. But again, Mm. like everything else we've been talking about here, he didn't apologize. He just said, you got me on the wrong sin. Right. Right. And if you mm. are out in the hurly-burly of politics, rather than apologizing, which would have been seen as weak and vacillating, instead you double down. So I think that what mm. your really good question shows, Joanne, is that there's not really much of a foundation on which recent apologies to be made. I think the two-party system builds a system in which to apologize is to admit defeat. And instead, what you need to do is to suggest that the person accusing you is somehow the one guilty of an infraction. Mm. It would have been exactly the same way in the workplace or in the home. Men do not apologize, nor do they take female charges of impropriety seriously. Basically, to back down either from a charge from a woman or from a political opponent was unmanly. This is the thing that I think, as historians, too, the thing that we're really grappling with now is this thing of, like, the historical apology, right? Like, Will the United States ever really apologize, you know, for slavery? You know, Mm. there really is a sense that we have to go back and now think about not just, you know, political missteps or interpersonal crimes, but even in in the long view, these bigger historical crimes that nations have committed and whether or not it's even possible to apologize for them. But the expectation of an apology is always lingering there. Well, and that's what's interesting to me is that and particularly right now, a, a lot of the public debate has to do with the question of whether these men actually apologized or not. And there's like a a, a demand, right, mm-hmm. that they should say, I am sorry for the thing I did. They shouldn't say, well, things were different then. Right. They shouldn't say, it's you know, I was a younger man. It's complicated. All of the things right. that they've been saying. I'm sorry you believe that you were <laughs> hurt <laughs> by my alleged... Right. I'm sorry your feelings have been hurt by right. the thing that I did not do. Exactly. Right. There have been all of these roundabout things. But, you know, in the same way that we have, as Nathan was just saying, a sort of historical sense that apologies are due, maybe it has to do with the realm of the digital and the fact that we feel that we have closer contact, maybe it's social Hmm. media. Is there the demands new and not the apologies? Well, you know, I'm a trained uh, historian, so I did notice a pattern in all this, (laughs) which is that it is men who are the ones who need to apologize. Mm. And suddenly, as Mitch McConnell says, we believe the women. Is Mm. that something happened where the burden of proof shifts from Mm. the person being accused to the person who has borne the injury. Right. But they're being held accountable to some degree by women, right? This is a moment where women are saying, hear me, right? You have not heard me before. Hear me. We are insisting on being heard. And part of that is, and apologize. As long as you're hearing me, or as long as I have some hope of being heard, apologize for Hmm. what you've done that so obviously needs an apology and is never apologized for.
So we, we perhaps shouldn't be surprised that the topic of politics and scandal is going to be part of our second topic. This time we're taking it to Alabama. Is that right, Ed? Yeah, Nathan, what I'd like to talk about is the upcoming Senate election in Alabama on December 12th, in which Mm -hmm. the Republican Judge Roy Moore is up against the Democrat Doug Jones. And what has made this election close and surprising are a series of allegations on the behalf of women who, when they were minors, uh, were the victims of predation by Judge Moore back in the 70s. And they've stepped forward uh, and have said that he is unfit uh, for this office. So here's the question. How will Alabama voters react to this situation? Alabama, like all the other southern states, has seen a remarkably rapid rise of suburbs. And for a long time, the suburbs have been the home of white Republicans when the South suddenly turned to the Republicans in the early 1970s. And the critical element of this seems to be what will the women who live in these suburbs decide to do in the face of these much-discussed and widely credited allegations at the same time that they have been voting Republican for generations now? Well, I think the surprising thing about this moment is that what we're really asking is a question of will, you know, women break from men in the suburbs in ways that will cause any noticeable change in the Republican Party's political fortunes in the state of Alabama. And I I don't know, actually. I mean, I think when people have talked about the suburbs before in the South and and any kind of change at all, it was usually around whether or not the suburbs were becoming more Latino, right, Right, or or they were becoming more immigrant-based. But now there's there's a sense that the household itself, and and in this case, you know, the white Southern household itself, would split around this. And I don't know if, if that will, in fact, happen yet. What do you mean you don't know? You can't predict the future because (laughs) all all the pollsters who've analyzed all this have figured out exactly what was happening, you know? Well, you know, the thing about it, right, is if you look at the the national election and, you know, the the president, in this case, you know, Donald Trump arriving into the White House with the majority of, you know, white women voters pulling the lever in his favor in spite of all the things that were said about his own improprieties and his own statements, you know, that didn't seem to matter a lick, and so to use a Southern phrase. Um, And and, and so I wonder, you know, if, if we are simply being hopeful that, you know, any notion of indiscretion on Roy Moore's part will somehow have a gender blowback that we did not see in the general election of last year. Well, what's interesting, though, is that Southern women that we're talking about here, I mean, this is those women aren't even just deciding yes or no on Moore right. because of the sexual allegations, right? The, the, the Southern women have a choice between gender politics and straight politics. So either they are going to back away from more because of those allegations, or uh, as far as straight politics goes, they're going to worry about the Supreme Court and they're going to right. maybe stay with him because by putting him in office, then that keeps the numbers of Republicans up and that allows straight politics to, to work in a Republican kind of a way. So it's gender really entangled with straight mm-hmm. party politics. Which raises the question for us all four of us as historians, how do we balance long-term demographic shifts? Uh, Mm -hmm. For instance, increasing number of Latinos uh, in the South uh, against the short-term influence, uh, the notoriety of the charges against Judge Moore, for instance. And throwing in a century-old pattern of the South voting in unison, uh, basically along racial lines. Solid South. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Formerly Democratic, now Republican. Right. So 
it's undeniable that, you know, the South is as dynamic a region as any other in the country in terms of the pressures it deals with in economics or immigration. Right. Um, the challenge is, of course, that these are districts we're talking about, Senate districts, congressional districts, right? This is state politics we're right. talking about. And the needle on that stuff is always harder to move. Talking about long trends, Brian, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, Southern politics has largely run through the state houses, right? Everyone who has tried to become successful and even run for the Senate successfully has had to do so with deep local ties, with ties to state legislatures. And those are not the kind of things that even a sexual scandal will necessarily move the needle on right away. Right, right. Okay. Well, so I have a, a question for you, Ed, that's sort of a early America-informed question, and it actually isn't unrelated to those deep structures that Nathan just mentioned. Now, in the early republic, there was a sense that Southern politics was distinctive, maybe is the word that I'll use. There was something a little bit rowdier or more guttural about Southern politics. Now, I know this makes me sound like a real Yankee here, but... Well, that's uh, all right, Joanne. (laughs) We'll talk about it anyway. Well, thank you there, Ed. Um, But when we're talking about deep structures and, and deep history here, we're partly also talking about cultural structures, too. So I wonder how that plays into this. Yeah, well, I'm glad these are easy questions that you're throwing at me. And I would say this, that (laughs) there there are several different things to think about. On one hand, the cultural part is that the white South has been the most explicitly evangelical part of the country, willing to put its religious faith and its politics hand in hand. And I think that's part of what we're seeing in the Roy Moore case. And one of the things that puzzled people so much in the vote for President Trump is how do they square these two things? So you have that cultural foundation, which is enduring and which has been around since the 1830s. On the other hand, we have big structural changes. Around the turn of the 20th century, the white South managed to put into place a system of laws and constitutions that completely suppressed the African-American vote. As a result, all of Southern politics became primary politics. And this feeds Mm. back into what Nathan was saying. Here, you're not actually even talking about national issues. You're talking about who knows who and who is the most flamboyant character. And it became low turnout Exactly, right. Very few people actually making the decisions. Yeah, somewhere between 15 and 35 percent of the Southern Mm. electorate actually votes in the first half of the 20th century. Okay? Mm. So that's for a presidential election. We can imagine what the primaries are like. So it's in the hands of a very few people. People. And in that, it's just what Nathan was saying. Friends and neighbor politics kind of overrides any other kinds of politics. But here's another weird thing. There is so little turnover in Southern politicians that they end up having enormous power at the mm. national level. That's for mm. because of something called seniority. Exactly. Chairs right. of committees in Congress were chosen literally by how long they had been there. So you end up with politicians like uh, Senator John Stennis from Mississippi, who rules the Military Appropriations Committee for decades just by virtue of the fact of his seniority. You end up with with, uh, titans of the Senate like Jesse Helms from North Carolina or Strom Thurmond from South Carolina, uh, who really have disproportionate power and with little turnover, they were there a long time. That's right. So that's what I was saying before about the South playing a disproportionate role in American politics. So to, here's what I think we're seeing in the case of the Alabama election coming up on December 12th. 
People are trying to figure out, is it going to be back from the 1840s like Joanne's talking about, sort of the, the DNA of Southern politics being sort of wild and woolly and very tolerant of personal foibles? Or is it going to be this very recent rise of the suburban world in the South that is trying to figure out where it stands in the nation? Given extra energy with the hashtag Me Too. Exactly. And the way it's going to affect mm. some of those suburban women, likely white evangelicals, but how are they going to go? Yeah, and that's the big question, is for the first mm. time, are Southern women, black and white, going to vote in ways other than their husbands and other men in their household do? That's not typically been the pattern in the South. This might be the time when we mm. see that pattern break. All right, now, so for our third and final topic, Brian, you're taking us somewhere else to the web. Is that right? (laughs) If you dare follow, Nathan. (laughs) Yeah, I want to talk about net neutrality because the FCC is debating that very issue this week. What's net neutrality? Well, a couple of years ago, the Obama administration said that everybody is entitled to equal access at the same speed to the internet. And so internet service providers like Verizon or Comcast need to be neutral in the way they treat individuals and the sites that those individuals go to. I don't want to dive into the weeds about this rather technical public policy. Rather, I want to talk about really the history of the equivalent of net neutrality. We have had lots of common carriers of information over the course of American history. And I want to take a look at how we've treated equal access when it comes to gaining access to that information. Joanne, I'm looking at you right now because I think the first common carriers were quite literally the people who carried the mail or carried newspapers to the citizens of the early republic. Well, absolutely. And that was uh, the question of the circulation of information, the Postal Service, and then specifically newspapers was a really politicized issue in the early republic because one of the things that made a republic different from a monarchy was that a republic was grounded on public opinion in a way that a monarchy wasn't. And what that meant was the public needed to be informed about what their government was doing. There needed to be very active circulation of information for a republic to work. And to back up that idea, in 1792, Congress passed the Post Office Act. And one of the things that that Post Office Act did was to actually deal with the circulation of newspapers and set a really low rate for their circulation, a very low postal rate. So you're saying, Joanne, kind of equal access subsidized by the government. Right. And uh, the government did not have the right to um, weigh in on which newspapers could have access to this free exchange. So in other words, the government had to be neutral regarding content. And, And newspapers in this period certainly were not objective in any sense of the word. They were extremely partisan. And that was part of what was happening in this period was the government was not weighing in 
And so in the universe of newspapers, it sounds like print neutrality. I think that that was the intention, yes, was was print neutrality. Ah, but what about those people who just wanted to write a simple letter? They paid more money. <laughs> ah, there you go. So the government yeah. was picking winners and losers. What do we take away from that period? Be careful, Joanne. I can tell Brian's got an agenda here. He what what, what do we take he's away from that period? Net neutrality or <laughs> the government putting its finger on the scale for public policy reasons? Well, I think they, if you asked James Madison, he would say both. He'd say, yeah, we're putting our finger on the scale. Why? Because the exchange of information has to happen in a neutral and active way for the republic to function. Yeah, it sounds like they'd figured it all out on the Postal Service, so I'm not really sure why the 19th century got so tangled up on the railroad. And just to be clear, they were the ultimate common carrier. Everything flowed through the railroad, right? I mean, there were steamboats and stuff, but this is really what connected the country. Exactly. So by the late 19th century, the railroads have really sort of covered the nation, trying to get access to markets. It's a lot like the Internet today, but in many ways, frankly, more important. Here's the problem. People look around, they say, this is not an equitable system at all. Farmers, the great majority of the population, are at the end of the food chain on this. Even though they're feeding the country, they are paying higher rates than the big iron producers or the big companies are able to guarantee the shipment of a lot of goods on a regular basis. And just to be clear, uh, not that I want to stand up for the railroads necessarily, but they're saying, look, this is what's efficient. We can count on these large manufacturers that produce year-round. These farmers want to deliver stuff short runs, and it just... It's more costly for us to deliver Yeah, because they're empty in one direction. After we drop off the grain or the cotton, then we don't have anything coming back. So it's a direct analog to the situation today. And it seems as if it's the bigger the company, the more they win. So we might think Mm -hmm. of the railroads as the Verizons and Comcast of today. Mm -hmm. They are carrying things, but they are not themselves the maker of those things, right? right? So U.S. Hmm. Steel, they're the Googles, the Yahoos, they're the content providers. Exactly. And so the question there is the same as today. What should be the relationship between those? And it goes back to Joanne's point about the post office. Now, when we all rely on internet access for our homework, to pay our bills, to listen to backstory, to listen to backstory <laughs> uh, most important That's of true. all, then it seems that there's a common good that needs to be advanced. And so where's the common good lie? And does it lie in these carriers being able to be profitable and sustain themselves? Or does it lie in sort of regulating things so that more people can benefit from their existence. Right. Right. But the railroads, from my understanding, really doesn't come out that way. That issue of equality, equal rates for long hauls, short hauls, farmers, U.S. Steel, not so much. No, I mean, the the farmers launched the populist movement in large part to control the railroads, and they Mm -hmm. fail. Uh, And so the railroads are still the vehicle of the people who have the money to pay for the freight. Okay. Well, it's one-to-one on historical (laughs) examples of net neutrality. Nathan, Nathan, we're in the fourth quarter. It's coming down to you. (laughs) Well, I'm going to have to tip this um, by making a stop back in Alabama, actually, um, and thinking about public carriers and a little 
company called National City Lines um, that ran the buses in the town of Montgomery uh-huh. um, yes. in, in, in the mid-1950s. What now, could the be I- unequal there, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the idea, of course, is that you know, with the license that National City enjoyed, they were supposed to provide equitable bus service to everyone in the city. But as we know, um, that was a place that became a lightning rod for debates about equality because of the Montgomery bus boycott in the mid-1950s, right? Um, And, of course, the way that this company enforced segregation was that it was in drastically unequal fashion. And and the city government of Montgomery, the state government of Alabama, the federal government of the United States of America were not making sure that the citizens of that city were having an equitable travel experience. And so it reminds me a lot, in fact— of our current debate around net neutrality because the question of, one, just general awareness about how inequality happens um, was not really taken honestly on the table in the city of Montgomery. Um, And it had to be asserted and really argued for in a very forceful fashion through a little thing called the civil rights movement, right? Um, And I think we are are facing now a, a question that's very much akin to the one that folks faced in Montgomery, which is will there be an acknowledgement at least that the possibility of abuse and the reality of, of abuse is still very much on the table. And we need to actually do a better job of making the net a democratic space and not making it more difficult um, for people to access the, the information superhighway, as it were. What strikes me as being crucial in all the examples is the role of the government. Mm. Here's the thing. I love the idea of the, of the government role that Joanne and James Madison described back at the beginning yeah. of the nation. Uh, I didn't like the government role that Nathan described in Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> so it's like a lot of things we've been talking about today. It is in the making of the political system, right? It's, right. it's how right. people deploy power for the greater good. And as horrible as that Montgomery government was— It's actually a a happy ending to that particular episode because people marched. They walked to work for, what, over a year, Nathan? Over a Uh, year. And they became the government. So it sounds at least that we we can't simply rely on bureaucrats or politicians um, to determine what counts as the public good, right? That in some cases, as in the case of Montgomery, you have to basically be willing to put boots on the ground and and fight for your public utilities. So the public ultimately has to speak up for the public good. As always, you know we got to check our footnotes. So we got something here that really does connect to our current season. We have now passed Thanksgiving, which means we are full throttle in the holiday mode. And this is a little headline I found from 1935. It says, colored children boo Negro Santa Claus. Okay? Wow. Oh. <laughs> it's the from the Associated Negro Press, which basically provides all the wire service for black newspapers around the country. And this is a story coming out of Richmond, Virginia in 1935. And this is a quote. 
An example of steeping the minds of colored children in white tradition was forcibly pointed out here Christmas Eve, when more than 20 colored children being entertained at a Christmas party in the Negro transient camp booed and shouted their disapproval of a conventionally attired Santa Claus. This St. Nick had the regular white whiskers, but around the hair on his face shone the ebony of his skin. The children, in their protest, yelled that Santa Claus was a white man and turned thumbs down on the colored counterpart. The, the party, yeah. it was reported, was otherwise a success. Unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I yes. like the closure. Aside from the play, Mrs. Lincoln. <laughs> now, I love this because, you know, it showed that this question of, one, the concerns around what children were thinking about even a fanciful figure um, were front and center for the national black media. Um, and secondly, that the kids would respond in the way that they did. So I wanted mm-hmm. to share that with you all. Nathan, my first reaction to this story is surprise. But after recovering from the surprise, I immediately thought of a footnote to the Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision about school integration in 1954. Mm -hmm. And that decision, many scholars believe, turned on Mm -hmm. a doll test. Ah. And the test showed that African-American students reacted poorly to black dolls, indicating Mm -hmm. a negative self-image. That was used by advocates on behalf of the NAACP to argue that we need integrated schools uh, because the image of African-Americans being inferior is so pervasive that the only way we'll be able to address that is through integrating the schools. So I, I too, was surprised when I first you know, read the story. Initially, it was funny because I imagined a scene out of The Little Rascals, right, with all these kids in the Depression <laughs> kind of pointing and, and gagging. Um, and then, you know, I thought of, like as you did, this deeper psychological question that was really animating, you know, a lot of activists in this period, you know, the, through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, it, it's also important to note that, you know, you have many cities in Pittsburgh and in Chicago that are really celebrating, in Harlem, certainly, the arrival of Black Santas, right, that this is a positive thing and a mark that black folk are being respected as consumers. It later actually becomes a rallying point for people in the context of the black power movement who are saying, you know, you should have representations of black Santas, not just in, you know, black communities, but also as part of the mainstreaming of black culture and even as a fair employment measure because there's a spike in contingent work (laughs) during the holiday season. I mean, what are you going to do? You got to get a job as a Santa. I mean, so the history of Black Santa is wide and deep, and it really does, you know, hit both intimate cores relative to this one small episode in the 1930s in Richmond and the longer history of equality and representations of, again, a fictional character, you Mm -hmm. know. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. 
This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And special thanks, as always, to the studios at Johns Hopkins University. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is for Royal Foundation and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.